Welcome to Lonely Girls, a podcast dedicated to examining, archiving, and applauding the loneliest girls in media and pop culture history. I am Madeline Turner, and I am joined by my distinguished co-host, Rebecca. Hi, Madeline. How are you? I have a little (laughs) bit of a cold, which Mm -hmm. I think is is honestly perfect for... um, the subject that we're going to be discussing today. Ooh, um, nice tie-in. This is the first podcast episode that we've ever... It's definitely the first time we've recorded this podcast. Oh, definitely. Because what Defin- kind of moron? <laughs> <laughs> what would we be if, if we recorded a full, like, I don't know, five-hour episode uh-huh. that we somehow couldn't use? For those of you who don't know literally anything about Rebecca. Um, As no one does. Yeah. What's your problem? <laughs> um, Re- Rebecca is a an artist, an actress, a podcaster, um, just sort of like an overall creative. She lives life theatrically and is, is by my definition and our definition, a lonely girl through and through. Ooh. And I am, I am thrilled to be doing this podcast with her. Can I introduce you now, Madeline? This is something I mean, I've I been guess. practicing in the mirror. Okay. I guess you Ma- can introduce me. Madeline mm-hmm. Turner is a Vogue celebrated interview. <laughs> I, that's the main thing I bring up. Um, she is a music video director. She oh is a God. filmmaker. She is an artist. She's an icon. I don't know. She's also oh. is an esteemed podcast guest. I am going to suggest this till the cows come home, y'all. Please listen to my interview with Madeline Turner from the beginning of 2021. Let's talk about, I think having two true lonely girls interact is fascinating. However, we should probably give everybody, this is our thesis episode. We are here. Yes. We're here to guide you into our concept. And we're here to indoctrinate you into the cult. Yes. And this is our lonely girl uh, thesis beginning episode. This all began... Uh, Yeah, this is our pitch to you. Let us (laughs) sell you on the fact that this is a thing. It's a thing. Yes. You were saying it started. So it started besides us just meeting and recognizing a similarity there. So this all started, I think, with like, I think we both knew we wanted to make something with each other. But so we were kind of gently pitching things, but not actually saying we should do something. And one day somewhere in our Instagram DMs, we started talking about Lonely Girl. Mm. And then both of us were like, ah, well, this person, this is a lonely girl. Yes. And there were a lot of people, a lot of characters that we grew up with and kind of, and I think through sharing those, um, which I guess we'll share on the socials. And then we kind of narrowed it down to all of a sudden, both of us agreed, oh my gosh, Mary Lennox is the the lonely girl. Well, we were saying, oh, the secret garden, Mary Lennox. Lonely gal. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, oh, a little princess. Lonely gal. Mm -hmm. And what do you know? They're written by the same bitch. And her name is Frances Hodgson Burnett. Uh And so like the good little scholars that we are, 
did a little research about Frances and realized she's got kind of a lonely girl story herself. And she truly is honestly like the patron saint of lonely gals. I And so that is why on this episode, we are going to be breaking down who is Frances? What is so lonely about Mary Lennox? What is so lonely about Sarah Crew? Or who knows? Or is she lonely? Or is she <gasps> lonely? <laughs> and oh. mostly, you'll all be wondering... How how two grown women (laughs) spent this much time thinking about this. And And as we move through this podcast series, I think you will see um, deeper aspects of yourself if you relate to to the lonely girl and and the 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 hope and the triumph to live live with your loneliness and and um, be a lonely girl at heart. But live outside of it. Okay. So before we get started, I think these check-ins are going to be important. Just oh, to, yes. We're going to keep – and also, guys, just letting you know, the definition of a lonely girl is ever-evolving. Yes. So if if we ever contradict ourselves, obviously – It's not our fault. It's not our fault. This is, this is a journey. Okay, yes. Madeline, what was your loneliest moment of the week? My loneliest moment this week. It's <sighs> a really great question. I do think I have sort of like a pattern of lonely girl moments that have been cropping up lately. I've been um, invited to much more social events where I was hadn't been for the past two years, and even before that, had not been invited to those sort she of social wasn't events. Famous yet. Is why. Yeah, and now I'm really rich and famous. So, mm-hmm. of course, I'm getting invited to all these parties. And I think my loneliest moment, my loneliest moments as of late have been like in the midst of like revelry, like in some sort of club or some sort of party. And everyone around me is, is, laughing and talking and connecting and having a good time. And there's this like deep feeling of, oh no, I don't know how to do this. Everyone here has a skill that I don't have and it's really loud and it's really um, overstimulating. (laughs) And the only, I don't know if you kids know this, but the only way you can leave a party and go back inside is if you are chain smoking cigarettes. Um, it's not a rule that I made up. Uh, it is just sort of, I think it's in the Bible somewhere. But that's sort of what what ends up happening is I will have to like run outside, uh, just start like a, a disgusting smoking habit. And um just stare up at the stars while the bass pumps in the background. And I think about how ill-equipped I am for this type of life. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think that like points out that like one of, cause as we're talking Madeline, I don't really know if we did define the lonely girl, but so oh, I yes. guess a big thing about the lonely girl is even, even if everything looks fine, like Madeline has friends. She literally does. She refers to them. (laughs) It's kind of crazy. And she's very enjoyable to be around, but I think it's that more intrinsic. There's a truth inside of the lonely girl that we think there is something 
intrinsically other about us or there is something Mm -hmm. that we don't get that everybody else does that whether it's true or not, whether like I've reflected back on high school about how lonely I was and both of my two best friends from high school are like, Rebecca, shut up. Like we were your friends the whole I, time. No, exactly. Like I I I will look back on my high school the entire time. I'm like, nobody knew who I was. I was so lonely. And like people definitely knew who I was and they were nice to me. And like I had friends. I had people that would like regularly check in on me but it was this feeling of like I am other I am alienated alone in a crowded room Mm -hmm. as a as a way of existing can you tell me the story that you said you wouldn't tell me and (laughs) oh I'm so excited it's honestly she dangled it in front of me it's honestly not even it's not even that exciting at all but like uh, just for f- frame of time reference, the Batman was released in theaters this week. And so if you're TikTok, if you're um, uh, Instagram, if you're uh, uh, Safari News, if your CNN News app has been flooded with Robert Pattinson content, it's probably because this film has been coming out and he's everybody's newest little darling. Has he always been our little darling? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Not I'm mine, sure. though. This, this is a, this new, is a new little dar- – I mean, I don't think I was, like, a Robert Pattinson stan, but I never – I never discredited him. I was, like – No. He's a, he's a good guy. But, like, as of late, I've been, like, oh, he's a darling little freak and definitely certified lonely girl. So I was out on the town on a Saturday evening, and I was um, invited to a – birthday party that was taking place at Tom Tom and Tom Tom is a, one of the restaurants owned by Lisa Vanderpump. So if you are a Vanderpump gal or guy, you'll know what I'm talking about and everybody from the cast was there. But as I am uh entering into this wild party, a a man wearing a baseball cap, uh like a beige hoodie, Beige slacks, I think, and sneakers, like, walks past me and, like, leaves. I don't think anything of it (laughs) until my friend grabs my arm as tight as she possibly can. And she goes, that was Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson was at this party. He just passed by you. And I look back and I'm like, oh, my gosh. There he was. And he was dressed so stupidly. (laughs) <laughs> and it makes me love him more. It makes me love him more. It's quite specific. Rebecca. Yes. We've talked enough about me How and we- my loneliness. <laughs> um, I would love to hear what your loneliest moment of the week was. I, yesterday, was pretty lonely. So, you know, when you're around people you know and you love, Either family or people who feel like family. Yeah, totally. I totally know that. <laughs> no, yes, yeah. I do. I do. We do. Both one of our bonding things is we, we are, love our families. It's kind of lame. I know. It'd be so much more chic if we hated them. Right. But um, <laughs> we're family gals. Um, <laughs> so I was with my sister, but then also 
my best friend who I've had for a very long time and her sister. And like, we've all done Thanksgiving together. So they are my family. And there is something so awful about leaving the people you're comfortable Mm. with. Mm. Yeah, it's the so worst. It's and it's like, and I was telling Annie, I was my best friend. I was like, I'm getting emotional, and Mary and Annie was like, No, and Mary's like, No, Rebecca does not. My sister, she was like, she doesn't separate well from people she feels safe with because okay, it's all really quick. Pause. This is like the fourth time we've brought up Mary on the podcast, and it's only the first episode. I do feel like yes. we should be doing something like a Hail Mary every time we talk <laughs> about Mary on the podcast. Like, I do think like she deserves, um, I don't know, like a sound effect or just sort of like an accolade of her own like because a, she truly like is. Yeah, exactly. Exact, like a little like um, sparkle sound, an animated sparkle sound. I think yes. like, that's what Mary should have because truly we love Mary. Mary's we- going to come up a lot. And I just, I just want to. I just want to prepare everyone for how much yes. you're going to hail Mary. Mary is going to come up quite a bit. She's my sister, and she has lived with a very lonely girl. And so she has called me out on a lot of just pathetic shit. So yeah. anyways, I was so I was feeling very lonely driving away from them. But also I was – anyways, we were like in transit. Like I was going from her house to the restaurant and somehow being in the car without them. All of a sudden it felt like – the stressors of the real world, I was just all of a sudden like not protected. And I was like pre-morning leaving Mm. the people I was safe with because it's a very select group. And it's almost like feeling too comfortable knowing that you're about to leave them. Once I go Mm. back into the real world, I'm fine. I'm a big kid, but it's the lead up is sad. And so I feel like I don't think Ed Sheeran is a lonely girl. However, no, no. However, however, he does write songs. He makes that, music for lonely girls. Oh, for sure. And so I must say, I don't really – I'm trying to get over something. So I'm not allowed to listen to music. I right. listen to the song Shivers by Ed Sheeran like 50 times in a row, and yeah. it was wrong. And so what's funny is as a lonely girl, no, like he's talking about like grinding in the club and it's like you're poison to me, but it's toxic, like – the drugs I do. Yeah, yeah. And that I can't connect with that. But my imagination, my expansiveness inside of me, I was addicted to this song because I was mm. like, yes, I too know the pulsing of the bodies in yes. the club. Yes. But I don't. Somehow- There's nothing lonelier than um, <laughs> knowing that you've experienced something that you've never experienced before. And so that was my lonely girl moment is like imagining and then it's like, like, ah, like I too have felt this sexy, raw, I shouldn't do it because it's like the coke I do. Okay. So guys, if this hasn't given you some idea to what we're like and if you hate it, it's about to get worse because now we're about to complain about different classic literary children's figures. (laughs) All right. So – we are going to start with the patron saint of Lonely Girls. Can you talk us through who is Frances? Frances. Burnett. We're just going to call her Little Miss Franny. Frances Hodgkin Burnett is a really interesting person. I, I find her, to, especially for the time that she was born in and the sort of 
ecosystem that she grew up in societally as a woman, as a financially destitute woman, and then somehow like a financially more upper class woman. I think she is really interesting. I have some dates. I know nobody cares about this, but I do. So Frances was born Frances Eliza Hodgson, and she was born in November of 1849. She was originally born in England to like this very, I would say, comfortably wealthy family. She had lots of siblings. She had a mom. She had a dad. Par for the course. And if you know anything about any of her work, if you were affected by any of her work, the next portion of her life will make a lot of sense. But her dad passed away when she was three years old. Work queen. Love, love a dead dad girly. I think I should preface this by saying that like I also have a dead dad who died when I was three. And so like kind of am like in the same way that um Rebecca went to school in London, like my dad is dead. Ding I just felt like I just (laughs) felt like that. Thank you. Thank you. We love dead dads, girly. Anyways. We love dead dads. Um, I think it is sort of the dead dad to lonely girl pipeline is something we'll we'll bring up uh, as time goes on. But she went from this very comfortable lifestyle in England with her family and um, mother and father. And then immediately once dad passed away, because it was the 1850s, basically, she the family went into absolute destitute poverty and they ended up having to move to America. Ew, gross. That's disgusting. They moved to Tennessee. Um, They moved in with an uncle on her mom's side, lived there for a while. As soon as she could earn money doing anything, she was like, I'm going to earn money. And she found that even though she hadn't gone through schooling past the age of 12, she was a very talented writer. And so she was writing when she was still at home, like providing for her family in America, writing pieces for like women's magazines and literary journals. Okay, so when she's in uh, uh, the city of Newmarket, Tennessee, they settled in this home that her uncle owned, and she became friends with a man named Swan Burnett. And Swan, funny enough, had been injured as a child and was somewhat of an invalid. And so if you were like a young, boisterous boy in the 1800s, you sort of like ran around and played. And if you were a girl, you didn't do that. But Swan couldn't do that because he was disabled to a certain degree. And so he and Francis spent a lot of time together. They would, like, exchange books and read stories to one another. And um, they had a lovely little friendship. But then he left for college in 1965. And Francis continued writing, trying to earn for the family. And then, unfortunately, in 1870, her mother died. Francis's mother died. So this left her in the care of like all of her younger siblings being the eldest daughter. She had to sort of like bulk up and make a life for herself that was going to be not just financially supporting her, but like her whole family because they didn't really have anyone but her. So three years after this, wouldn't you know, uh, her her friend Swanee comes back into town and they decide they love one another and they get married. I think they had a very sort of like loving, more platonic relationship. I don't think it was super 
you know, incredibly like sensual or passionate, but I think they had a real love and respect for one another. And they did end up having two children with one another. The first boy was named Lionel. And he was born a year after they got married, making her, she was 24 when she got married. That's important to me. Is it important to you? I don't care. And then had her second son, Vivienne. And I loved this little uh, little bit that I found on the internet because it will come back into play later. She had wanted her second child to be a girl and having chosen the name Vivienne, changed it to the masculine spelling for her new son, which I don't know how to pronounce. I think is just Vivienne. She would make clothing for her sons. She's very, you know, crafty, thrifty in that sense. And she would design velvet suits with lace collars for her boys and frilly dresses for herself. And she allowed her son's hair to grow long. Um, and then she would like shape them into like long curls. So she had these like little beautiful boys in velvet suits with long curls. We're gonna run through the sort of later half of her life. She raises her sons, it, it all goes well. She's finding success in her writing. She writes the book Little Lord Fauntleroy, which, which we is, will talk about later. Oh, we'll talk about that, <laughs> little lord. And as at the time of her death, little Lord Fauntleroy was considered her most successful work. This book that she wrote kind of like sent the Victorian world into a tizzy. I should also mention the fact that she moved back to England at this point, raised her children in England with Swan Burnett. There is a, a quote. In 1884, she began work on Little Lord Fauntleroy, and it was published in 1886. It received good reviews and became a bestseller in the U.S. and England and secured Burnett's reputation as a writer. The story features a boy who dresses in elaborate velvet suits and wears his long hair in curls. Fashion in the book became popular with velvet Fauntleroy suits being sold. Other Fauntleroy merchandise included velvet collars, playing cards, and chocolates. So people like kind of lost, I mean, Fauntleroy core was uh, was big for, I don't know, like mommy bloggers. Like I, I see it as sort of like the sad beige child, like a version mm. of that. Like I'm going to dress my little boy in these gorgeous velvet suits and curl his hair really long and let him be, you know, a, a wild darling angel child. We push on to the later half of her life. She writes A Little Princess, which does well. It started off as a stage play and then became a serialized work that she published regularly in magazines and then formed into like a full book, the book that we know to this day. Her and Swan's relationship was very straightforward. There was not too much like upheaval between the two of them. But in December of 1890, Burnett's eldest son, Lionel, died from consumption in Paris. And you can sort of see this be the maybe the most significant shift in her writing from this point onwards. So after the death of her eldest son, she sank into a insane depression. She was institutionalized at one point and thus forth 
her marriage dissolved. Credit to Swan, it, it seemed like he was sort of fine with the divorce, or at least wanted to do it in a way that wouldn't societally, legally destroy Burnett. So he took his own apartment and ceased to live with Burnett so that after a period of two years, she could plead desertion as a reason for the divorce. We enter into our next era, which is the Matham Hall era. And this is kind of like Burnett's, I would say, I don't even know how to describe it. It's sort of like her wild child era. She lives in this like gigantic estate um, called Matham Hall. And it's got this, it's this sort of like gothic estate with lots of like gardens on the property. She spends a lot of time in these gardens. She also spends a lot of time with an actor named Townsend. What's his first name? Stephen Townsend. And uh, to be fair, prior to the divorce between her and Swan, she had already developed a relationship with Stephen. She was a writer of plays. He was an actor, a stage actor. And it seemed that there was something of a you're a young, hot man. I am a successful female writer. I will write parts for you to play to help further your career. Which honestly, like, go girl. Like, get get yours. Yeah, I, he was a muse. He was, it, a, he was her muse. Stephen Townsend yeah. was her muse. At Matham Hall, her and Stephen lived there. They sort of, you know, kept a Bonnie court, as they say. They had a lot of artists and friends sort of visiting them. And this was, I would say, probably more of like a manic era for, for Francis. At this point, they weren't married yet and sort of scandalized the town that Matham Hall was uh, situated in, but eventually like succumbed to peer pressure slash probably just the desire to get married and they did get married her and Stephen Townsend and it immediately turned into like the most insane marriage on earth within months in a letter to her sister she admitted the marriage was in trouble she described Townsend as scarcely sane and hysterical I just love really this is a classic story that if we gender swapped it's like oh here's a great writer and the first wife just gently steps aside and then he's like well I never really got to get it so now I'm gonna party boy around and write roles for a beautiful young actress exactly and then he's and like, then she's like she's insane <laughs> <laughs> it really is like Francis is kind of like I mean for lack of a better word kind of a girl boss yeah. So she spends the like later portion of her life. Her marriage with Townsend is not going well. That dissolves eventually. She ends up um, getting institutionalized. She, I wouldn't say getting. She uh, admits herself to. Checks herself uh, in. She checks herself in and stays away from him for a period of time thinking that like, oh, I'll work on myself and it'll be better. And then she goes back to him. And within like months, she's like, no, 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 we need to end things. She divorces him. And this is the period of time where she writes A Secret Garden as someone who is a creative, to, who hopes to create things that are good and great. The idea of someone creating something as special and as poignant as A Secret Garden in the later years of her life and it being sort of this culmination of what she's experienced, her growth internally, and what she genuinely believes, her internal philosophy as a writer and as a person, as a mother, etc. 
I think is so beautiful and inspiring because it truly is, if not, I mean, definitely her best work, but one of the best children's books ever written in the last few centuries. She died October 29th, 1924. She lived till the age of 74. And she was buried in Rosalind's Cemetery. And her son Vivian was buried nearby when he died in 1937. And that is the life of our patron saint, Francis Burnett. Burnett, loud. Burnett. Ended. <laughs> it ended strong at the end. Thank you so much for doing it. I enjoyed it so much because this was the first time I've heard it. I just imagine, though, her being buried in, like, this beautiful, like, lacy, frilly bed jacket. Like, you know that, like, because aesthetics are important to both of us. Yes. And, and like, my – Clearly important to Frances. Clearly she important She was a to- woman of aesthetics, which also I didn't point out, but we should definitely talk about. Mm-hmm. Frances was never known as, like, a great beauty. At all. She would never describe herself as a great beauty. Nobody would describe her as a great beauty, but she like pulled tail and she was able to get the people she wanted to get. And like if you look her up, a lot of her photos are straight up thirst traps. Oh, she yeah. is like lounging and like the cleavage is here and it is up and she is ready. And I think that endears me to her even more. We were actually just talking before the podcast about people who just decide they're beautiful. And they're like, well, because I am very beautiful, I must um, wear a velvet gown. And because I am very beautiful, mm-hmm. I'm. and I think when I'm feeling my most discouraged, I'm like, well, and I'm like, well, because I am very beautiful, I must take great care of my skin because, oh, yes. I'm, just, I'm so beautiful. I have to and I preserve must- this beauty. Okay, so let's talk about a little princess. Yes. Um, do you mind if I lead this one up? Oh, It'll, girl, uh, you better. Okay, I'm going to – so guys, not meaning to brag, but I listened to all three of these books. I did a, not. Within a week, right before record, literally I finished Little Lord Fall into Roy and they were like, the end. <laughs> and then I called Madeline immediately and I was like, ah! Anyways, A Little Princess. So it is about the most darling perfect girl in the whole wide world. Her in name the whole, is- Literally the whole world. The whole wide world. One thing that comes up and Madeline educated me on is India comes up in both A Little Princess and Secret Garden. And it is because there was a very much an otherness about India, which then also to them meant magic, something mysterious, something very other. Sarah... <laughs> Oh, Sarah. Also, sometimes we might say Sarah when we mean Mary because those names are too similar. They're the same name. I'm sorry to anyone named Sarah or Hail Mary. Hail Mary. Uh, They're the same name. So anyways, with Sarah shows up. She is the most darling, beautifully dressed girl. Her mother is dead and it doesn't matter because she has a daddy who loves her so, 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 so So much. much. And her Daddy is taking Daddy. her. I'll, I'll switch it to dad. She has been taken to the girl's school that her mother went to, and he has to go back to India to take care of his diamond mines. Which, sorry, could- let's just say that one more time. What does her daddy own? <laughs> diamond mines. Like, 
mini diamond mines and he's already rich. He's just invested in the diamond mines Mm -hmm. and he's going to get richer. So he takes her to the school and he's like, please take care of my little princess. So she's treated like a little princess. Then surprise, it's her birthday party, record scratch. The owner of the school gets word that Sarah is actually, her father is dead and there is no diamonds. There is no diamond mines. She is made to be a servant. Everyone was Forget she was like fluent in French. She was reading about the French Revolution. She was like she was like doing gentle parenting on sad orphans until Daddy died. So she goes upstairs and still like there's still this poor servant Becky who is still I almost called her Nelly because it's very similar to very much could be truthfully it's might as well might as well be a Nelly (laughs) and um and so like. Becky is when she hears the sad truth that Sarah has now been condemned to be a servant girl, she is heartbroken because she is obsessed with Sarah. And like they make a point that Nellie is older, but she's not very smart. And so she mm. still reveres this tiny child. There's another a girl- dumb bitch. <laughs> oh, we're calling her Nellie. <laughs> Becky. Sorry. And then there's what is it? Is it Ernestine Eugenia, the glasses girl who is like Eugenia, anyways, it's with an E. Yeah. Ernestine makes a point that she's like bad at reading. And then at one point, Sarah's like, let's all pretend we're princesses. And Ernestine is like, I'm too fat and I have mm. glasses, so I can't mm. be a princess. And then Sarah is very much like, mm, we can all be princesses. But it just <laughs> it just feels condescending. And also, I just want to say I entered this book being like, oh, another lonely girl. It's Sarah. And then as I'm listening, I'm getting angry. But the the scene that does it for me is now she's a servant and she finds some money on the road. Sarah is passed by people and there will be commentary of like, this family passes. And they're like, wow, she looks like a beggar, but she doesn't act like a beggar. And then her nickname by this family that lives nearby is the girl who is not a beggar. Like that's (laughs) – that's her nickname. So anyways, she, she's so beautiful. And she's like, so pretty. And so has like, wow. And one of the things I wanted to bring back up is it's kind of the motto of like, even when you're not rich on the outside, Sarah is still rich on the inside. And it's what's on the inside that's mattered. But like she gives this girl these buns from the bakery. And she is starving to death, but so is this girl on the side of the road. And honestly, is it awful of me, Madeline, that I think they both should have split the buns? I I did. The fact that she got two buns and she was like, no, I'll give both the buns to the beggar girl. Like, I get it. It's supposed to be sort of a representation of like, Sarah's so good. And like, that's why she's a princess because she's so good. But like, like... that it's doesn't like, make sense. It's they like, can both have a bun. It's like Jack and Rose on the door in the Titanic. It's like you both could have been on the door. We know we know this. It's what's also sad is they the the writing describes how she like isn't even as enough of a human, this beggar, to even thank Sarah. She like wolves She's it just down yeah. and devours it like an animal. And then Sarah's like, it's okay. I don't <laughs> I don't need I don't any need food. food. I'm a princess. And then she like imagined she has food and that's just like really cute. It's very little match girl of her. (laughs) It's really annoying. So then (laughs) (laughs) – 
She lives in the attic. She pretends she has food. And then a person across the way sees what a good little poor person she is. But she it's like they don't actually want to help the poor. They like her because she is poor, but she doesn't act like that. So exactly. they want to reward it. They want to award her inner privilege. <laughs> Pretty much. And so then they magic over – not really. They bring over these carpets and this food. Then it turns out that the person who lives next door has was actually the business partner of her father and the diamond mines actually have tons of diamonds because of mm. course they were <laughs> – they were the diamond mines were rich on the inside all along and now she's actually quite wealthy her dad is still dead but now Sorry, this man Sandy. but what's great is they realize it's sarah i can't remember how even though i just listened to it and <laughs> it's like so forgettable and then she meets the new guy who's like i'm so sorry your dad is dead and i am the most unhappy and then she immediately like talks to him like she's like it's like he was her dad and she just kind of forgets about the old dad and now this is daddy now she and, has a new daddy and so that is that is it that's kind of i tried to go fast but i it's there's a couple details that piss me off so we've broken down sarah what am i missing what am i missing about our delightful little princess I do rich think it's, on the inside. I think what's really interesting is within the book, you are getting you are getting like Sarah's internal thoughts and feelings about things. You are getting external people like strangers on the street. You're getting Miss Meacham, which is the yeah. owner and uh, headmistress of the school that she's going to to be like educated to be taught to be a woman. You're getting all this sort of input about Sarah. And it does sort of feel like Sarah doesn't really change that much. She doesn't really have an internal evolution at all. It's sort of everything's more happening to her than mm -hmm. anything else. No, she doesn't change. She doesn't change at all. She starts off being introspective, imaginative, sensitive, brilliant, and beautiful. Precocious. Oh, so precocious. And ends being incredibly precocious, deeply mm -hmm. precocious. The only person, and maybe now I'm on her side, truly, the only person who sees through it and like is like out <laughs> to get Sarah from day one is the headmistress of this school. She is so threatened by this little perfect angel child and honestly i kind of get it like uh, if there's anyone that's going to throw you into a spiral it's going to be a little girl who has it all and is not afraid of you yeah and i and is like so smart and everyone worships i one thing that madeline brought up because as i'm listening to it very immediately it's like oh she's such a solemn creative child and i realized i think a lot of lonely girls in the real world, read this growing up, and I loved A Little Princess, yes. but it's because I think Sarah is what a, a lonely girl wants to be, is that even though we feel like, oh, I'm so different, we love the idea that everyone is actually watching us and being like, like who I'm, is that beautiful who is that little girl? Yeah, and everyone is Gino's fascinated friend. by her. I think that's Madeline pointed out, the – Sarah Crew is who a lonely girl wants to be, is admired for no reason instead of feeling like an outsider 
for no reason. Yes. And I um, do think when you look at uh, if Francis Burnett is the patron saint of lonely girls, I think it would make sense that the beginning parts of her uh, repertoire, her her sort of like catalog of writing is going to be a much more idealized version of herself. Frances wants to be. She lost her father. She wants to be this noble, beautiful child who everyone loves and admires the whole time. Like this is also her fantasy and it makes so much sense it came before Secret Garden. So she wrote Secret Garden when she was in her 50s. And so this is post the death of her child. This is post sort of like the rise, rising and falling of her like literary success. This is post both divorces. And Secret Garden is. Secret Garden is. The writing, uh, the writing and publishing of Secret Garden is post the whirlwind of her life. You can see that so clearly in the way that she writes this main character, Mary Lennox, who I think in, I think a a little princess could have been saved if the main character hadn't been beautiful and likable from the start. Yes. I think if, if when she had lost all her money, she had learned to be good and had learned, if she had started off being very petulant and spoiled, but charming, had this sort of like the same uh, charisma that brought people around her, but it was selfishly motivated. And then Sarah had lost all her money and her family and everything and humbled herself Mm -hmm. and had learned how to tap into that goodness in spite of it all. That would have been such a more compelling story than she could have remained beautiful. She could have remained an, uh, incredibly beautiful. But if her heart had been different and then evolved over time, I would have been like, oh, this is a good film. This is yes. like – this is r- – film. This is a good book. And I think – can I bring up um, – I think like one of like kind of her antithesis in the book is Lottie who oh, yes. Let's talk about, about Lottie. We love Lottie. We and it's really there's just this one scene that we really get to see Lottie because mostly Lottie's just obsessed with Sarah, as is everyone. Mm-hmm. But there's this great scene where I just thought it was such a great observation of children is that Lottie's mother died at some point and now she's at this school and she has overheard and I think she's like supposed to be five, maybe six, really young. And at some point she overheard someone saying, oh, poor Lottie, she doesn't have a mom. And she was almost too young to process that. And it's implied she didn't really know her mom, but now she understands if she's ever emotional, if she's ever upset, she can cry and go, I I don't have a mom. And it's a thing she can get herself worked up about. So really, if she's upset about something else, as children often are, she can say it's because she doesn't have a mother. And it's not because she's trying to get away with something. She just knows if this is what she says she's freaking out about. People She's more likely to get her way. Get her way. And then also that makes people feel uncomfortable. Like Madeline making dead dad jokes. I do want to say I genuinely would do the exact same thing. I think it's such a real – and I think clearly that's something that Frances knew. Understood. Knew deep down inside. She understood. She understood that she could use – you can always use trauma as a way to – Manipulate. But when I was young and I was getting in trouble and I would start crying because 
I was getting in trouble. I knew that if I go, I just really miss my dad. There would be at least a moment of sympathy. Luckily, I have a very smart, um, wonderful mother who saw through my bullshit and she shut it down very fast. So I was not able to do that. But I think it's such a it's a great it, observation. It's such a good observation. And I think what I love about Frances's work throughout her entire discography <laughs> is that she writes really dynamic characters. And even though Sarah Crew is not, we'd like her to be a little bit less perfect and everyone to be a little bit less obsessed with her. She is a much more dynamic child's character than many that you see in writing of the time or even now. Oh, that reminds me, um, trying to use my college education for something. Um, <laughs> seriously. Um, so Fanny Burney um, wrote, uh, I think they're called Book of Manners, and they had a big influence on like Jane, like Jane Austen grew up reading Fanny Burney. And, mm. and it had Wait, a very- sorry. Fanny Burney and then Francis Burnett, Franny Ooh, Bernie. Look at that. Okay. Franny Francis. Well, except Fanny Bernie kind of sucks because yeah. she has these leads. I think mine I read was Evelina and it was very much what they would do is they're like, here's a pretty, pretty girl who is rich. And you're like, okay. And then she is thrust into a social situation where like a duel happens outside of the opera and into her carriage. And she must now as a perfect person respond perfectly and then it is it is like a manual to a girl being like hey if a fight ever acts like this you must make sure to be gracious like this and it mm -hmm. is a character who is already perfect and then it's going to take you through society and show you how to behave and mm -hmm. a little princess i thought reading this i was like this is definitely a book of manners this is a book yes this is a book of manners Yes, this is a book you show to a kid and go like, why can't you be good like Sarah? Okay, so – oh, also at one point, I just need to point out all my bitchy moments. At one point, they say about Sarah, she uh, – quote, unquote, she almost died of loneliness. And I wrote that down and I wrote down next to it. No, doesn't bitch. Count. I said, she doesn't, doesn't count. get it. <laughs> and I just wrote with the scene with the beggar girl, Mary would never – Mary would either take – all those biscuits, or yeah. she would have split them like a decent, smart She human. would have had a little bit of logical thought put into it, which I think perfectly brings us into the next portion of our episode, which is talking about Francis's final work, her magnum opus, if you will, the best children's book ever written, A Secret Garden. And our, our pivotal character, our main character, Mary Lennox. Why don't I take us through like the first half of the book and then okay. we can dive into the second half. Let's do it. Okay. So Mary Lennox is um, an ugly little brat whose parents hate her. And she's she so sick. She's yellow and skinny and everyone tells her literally every page how ugly she is they're like your mom was so gorgeous and your mom hated you because you were ugly which like work honestly so mary lennox is 10 years old she's living in india again the romanticization of india she is uh, raised by 
ayas, which are um, Indian uh, nannies slash caretakers. Her parents never see her. Her dad is like a dad, and her mom is no. I, I in in so many words, like known to be very um, beautiful and sensual, and almost like flirtatious to anyone and everyone. Like She's her mother is girl. like coquettish. Yes. Mary is not that. Fun record scratch. Both of her parents die. The plague, a plague, not the plague, a plague breaks out in India and everyone in the entire encampment that she is a part of dies. Mary does not truly feel one way or the other about it. She's kind of just pissed that no one's there to like dress her or like give her breakfast or wake her up. Um, so she's taken a, a sequent series of events, uh, lead her to what's the name of the house? Oh gosh. May oh, Misselthorpe Manor. Great name. Misselthorpe Manor. She is taken to Misselthorpe Manor, which is the estate of her mother's twin sister's husband. So it's her uncle by marriage. Now her aunt has died, um, and her uncle is sort of this despondent, angry, humpbacked bachelor who never stays at home, and Mary is sort of cooped up in this large, sad manor with uh, now cold weather and hearty English food and people who make her dress herself. Mary goes into the situation and she's sort of not having it. She's a little peeved. I get it. But what I like about Mary is she never really faults anyone for thinking that she's ugly and terrible. She like kind of knows it. She's like, yeah, no, I'm ugly and terrible, but like, give me breakfast. Put on my stockings. Who do you and she think doesn't, you are? She doesn't try to adjust her behavior. Like no. kids make fun of her. They're like, you're weird. At some point she interacts with other kids and she's like – God, y'all suck. Mary, Mary's, uh, Mary's not happy, and Mary's never, never been happy, which I think is kind of, kind of a serve. At one point, she says she likes someone for the first time, like a hundred pages in. She's like, "Oh, I like him. I've never liked anyone, before. anyone for the first time." So she's forced to do all these things that she hasn't had to do before, like go out and play, and she starts roaming around these gardens at this estate. Which is, you know, like we talked about, this book is based off the uh, manor that Franny Bernie stayed at. And she meets a man who uh, is a, you know, is a, an old crotchety groundskeeper. And they have a, a sort of nice banter. Yeah, they've got a nice little they've got a nice little banter going. I kind of like I think she likes the fact that this man like doesn't take shit from her. Yeah. And he kind of likes that like she's just this like this little uppity queen. Like who they're, does she think she is? And they're match they're made both in heaven. Kind of miserable. Like Yeah. And they're not threatened by – I think they're not threatened by the other one. Yeah, I think he's the first person she ever likes. And then there's what Robin. What is his name? I can't remember. What's the groundskeeper's name? Is it Tom? Is it Bernard? 
No. Is it Ashley? <laughs> I don't know. No. Um, and, and all while this is happening, when Mary is in the house, so there's like the distinct uh, difference between her being in the gardens, being outside, getting healthier, getting fatter. They use the word fatter. And then being inside the house and at night hearing these like cryptic, like spooky ghost sounds of someone like screaming or someone like crying. And she's told by the lovely servant, Martha, Martha, that it's just the wind howling along the moors. But we we learn that's not to be not to be true. Would you like to take it from here? Rebecca? I would. <laughs> this is me um, saying I think this is the middle point of the story. I think it's about the middle point. Um, thank you, because now I get to talk about my favorite scene. I am about as good at lying as Martha is. I, I'm a bad, bad liar, and so is Martha. And Martha, <laughs> as we discover, Dickinson, Dick, Dick. What's the Dickin. Dick? Dickin, Dickin, um, Dickin. <laughs> nope. So Martha has a magical brother named Dickon, and I'm mm-hmm. still trying to define out of all the definitions that uh, Madeline and I have been creating. I don't know what he is, but we love him. And it's weird because he also is magical. Everybody is instantly obsessed with him. Literally, mm-hmm. Mary hears about him, and she's like, I like him. He's on my very short list of four people I like, and she hasn't even met him yet. She's, she's- just like, he's this magical boy who – plays the flute and like Mm -hmm. um, all the animals are obsessed with him. Like even animals are obsessed with Dickon. Everybody loves Dickon. His name is Dickon. But Dickon is like, check out these squirrels. And everyone's like, I love them. And he's like, he's like, whatever squirrels. I'm going to play my flute. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, it's that annoying thing where he doesn't need approval from anyone. And it's not really going to change his life. And he's just vibing. I listen, I love Dickon, but also if I met him in real life, I would be like, I don't trust that boy because I'm jealous because I want to be him. Maybe his definition, it might be magic boy. We might throw some more. I think we need need more people that fit into whatever category Dickon is to figure it out. Yeah. So anyways, okay. So she finds out that they're – is a garden. It's like a wall. No one has been in. No one really talks about why nobody has gone in. And it's a mystery. And the gardener dude is the one that tells her. So instantly she becomes obsessed. Obsessed. Obsessed with it. And we don't know where the key is. Okay. So she's about to meet. Her uncle um, for the first time. Her uncle. So this is my favorite detail. Has she found the key to the secret garden yet? Before I she think she them. has. I don't know. Uh, kids just – kids are crazy. Sometimes it's they just, just find keys to gardens in <laughs> giant manners. But also let me say she's doing nothing all day except like – Like trying to find this key. <laughs> Like if so I had like, all day just to wander around trying to find a big ass key to open a wood door to a garden, I it might be easier. Than yeah, we think. And also she has no plans of ever going to school or anything no. ever. Her whole life is in front of her to actually <laughs> find a key. So she finds the key and quite quickly, which is awesome because I think a lot of books would be like, now it's the search for the key, and the whole book is about finding the key. But actually. The key, she gets in pretty fast and she yeah. – no, but no one is allowed in the garden and this 
This is why Mary's a little sneaky girl. She is called in, and this is my favorite scene, I think, in this book. She's called in to meet her uncle. He's been off traveling. We don't really know what. And besides escaping the pain of his dead wife, I guess that's right, the right. thing. I mean, so he's called. she's called in to see um, Mr. Craven, I believe. And there's a detail where she has, since being in the garden, being on the ground, she has become fatter. They just say that constantly. She's become a more interesting, interested girl. But then when she's summoned to see Mr. Craven, it says she transforms back into a plain, ugly girl again because she's scared and nervous. And I thought that was such a beautiful detail that she doesn't – it's not that she's become – her her appearance has changed. She has put on healthy weight. She has – gotten sun so she does look better but it's actually going into a room with someone she's scared of she's nervous she's uncomfortable and that is actually what transforms her back into this ugly child even though people have been complimenting her experience appearance and he actually the uncle actually likes her and she livens back up and he's like what do you what what is i'll give you anything you want then she goes (laughs) What is it? Love that. Okay. But I think he just recognizes kind of he's not charmed because she's Sarah and delightful. He I think she just he's likes charmed her. by like her spirit, like her sort of spunk. Yeah. And she asks him for a bit of earth. Oh Mary, Mary is about to introduce us to we're now showing you that it's a gender neutral thing. We are about to meet another, another lonely, lonely girl. Uh, and his name is Colin, and it is her cousin, and she didn't know he existed because it's just like in the beginning, people – when everyone died in India, people didn't even realize she wasn't around. People forgot about her. There is a fear that he is going to be a hunchback like his father, so he has been bedridden. And it's almost the fear of being a hunchback has made him sick in himself and he is so fearful that he is going to become sick and once again his father won't come and look at him like barely he's basically ever. been forced to stay in his bed mm-hmm. feeling terrible about himself feeling that he is unlovable he's ugly he's going to die he's mm-hmm. going to die soon anyways so what's the point and in turn that has turned him into a different type of, but as much of a brat as Mary Lennox. Yes. And that's why when he's screaming and crying, she just like comes and gives him a piece of her mind. And she's like, calm down. And he's like, who are you? I'm about to die. And she's like, I, I literally don't care. And literally, it's just she's like, I didn't know you existed like an hour ago. So, so why I don't I- care. I literally <laughs> could not dead. care less. And I think that is one of my favorite, <laughs> my favorite interactions is, is two, two petulant people <laughs> who find their match. And it's like, it's like he's made everyone feel uncomfortable. And I think the difference is he doesn't make Mary feel uncomfortable. So to calm him down, she tells him, Uh, about the concept of the secret garden. She doesn't reveal that she has found the key yet um, because she doesn't doesn't know this kid. So he could possibly ruin it. And so the idea of it even existing, and he finds out about Dickon, and even the idea of Dickon existing, 
calms him down. Boys, girls, I can't help it, baby. Squirrels. Everybody loves Dickon. And we just <laughs> were obsessed. And so I think the next day, I can't remember if like she goes to see him the next day or wh- whatever. The most important thing about uh, Colin next is he's upset. So he's like, Mary's out gardening and hanging out with Dickon. And she has been fetched by a servant. Like, hey, Colin wants you. And Mary's like, I don't care. Like, and honestly, I loved that because Sarah would have been like, but of Sarah would have been like, oh no, the poor cripple. I've (laughs) got to go see him and give him all of my bread, even though I'm hungry. (laughs) And Mary's like, no, I have boundaries. I'm going to do what I want. And I'm going to go hang out with Dickon. And she's not even, but it's not even like I hate Colin. She's like, no, this doesn't work for me on my timeline. I'll do it later. But this yeah. Kind of ridiculous. I know I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. I I'm going to come to him later, and he loses his mind. And something that I loved about this moment is he becomes becomes he's upset and he's sad, which then ignites his fear again that he might be a hunchback. It ignites in him again that he's going to die, and he wasn't thinking about that until he because. It's not just, oh, he's mad. Because when a kid gets upset or when an adult, it's never actually that. He is a, he's been abandoned. He is alone when Mary won't come to him. And then that's what gets him spiraling again. And I love that it's, in, I don't know if it's perfectly described, but it makes so much sense that it's not a brat. It's actually not a bratty kid just being mean. He wants his cousin because he feels lonely And he now feels abandoned. So he's going to now rely on this fear and trauma he's always relied on. And then he loses his, he loses his shit. This gives us one of Madeline's favorite scenes in cinematic history. Oh my gosh. If you guys (laughs) haven't seen it, I will recommend the 1986 made-for-TV adaptation of A Secret Garden for just this scene alone where – the girl who plays Sarah, who is American, by the way, and is doing an accent. Not sure what <laughs> accent that is. She's doing it. She's giving it. She's probably 10 years old and she is carrying this film. <laughs> and she goes in there and she screams at she screams at Colin. She she's like, I can shout louder than you. I can shout longer than you. I can shout louder than you. So if you want to do this, if you want to go head to head, if you want if you want to bitch off Colin, uh, step up, step up, do it. And he immediately is like, oh shit. And it's so satisfying because I think, on top of their sort of maybe not as like emotionally healthy dynamic. There is sort of a connection between them. And also up until this point, the, the, the main housekeeper misses something, something spooky, something spooky. She has been a little anti Mary and she's the one who's been in charge of Colin and has kept Mary away from Colin and she is like privy to the power, the kind of on her side power that Mary has in calming Colin down, which she's never been able to do without immediately giving into whatever tantrum he's throwing. Where Mary is like, shut up or I'll go. 
Like, I'll leave right now if you don't shut up. And I think that is so fun and such a fascinating dynamic, especially with two children mm-hmm. who have – one has, like, a very dismissive, avoidant attachment style and one of them has a very anxious attachment style and how they're both working through that and mm-hmm. finding connection in spite of that. Like, I have never seen anything like that. <laughs> Really, ever in children's literature, like I know, or after. it's a really special moment. Okay, my brain is a little muddled right now. What happens? Yeah, how much longer? And is the next important event like uh, Colin eventually gets to go into the garden? I think it is. So, like throughout this whole thing, Mary and Dickon have been like the moment that she finds the garden. The first person she tells is Dickon because he understands how to make things grow and she doesn't know how to do that. So her and Ben Weatherstaff, that's the name of the groundskeeper. So Mary, I know Mary and Ben and Dickon are uh, doing what they can to get this garden back to life. And Mary, in one of the moments where Colin's, like, losing his mind, um, she's like, I'll take you to the garden if you just stop being such a psycho, please. And so they get him in a a wheelchair and he's allowed to leave because he has that kind of power in this house, which is fun to to watch. Yeah. Yeah, it's super fun. It's super fun to see a a 12-year-old boy um just completely dictate the <laughs> ecosystem well, of like well, an entire estate he he is the master of the house and that's also one of the reasons it's such a weird dynamic with the servants is it's brought up like multiple times like everyone must do as i say i and it's kind of like how lottie locks on to my mother is dead he locks on to the hunchback thing but also he understands he's the master of the house and so he's like I'm going to go outside. He's going to cling on to whatever power he can get. Totally. And his is – like they say, I'm going to go outside, but absolutely. Just so funny. Such a like kid lie. It's like why did y'all fall for this? But all in all, what ends up happening is they get him into the garden. They are both at a point where both Colin and Mary – Dickens a manic pixie dream boy. He didn't need to be healed. He was healed from day one. They start like genuinely healing and genuinely enjoying life, like being able to be vulnerable and enjoy life. And after a time, Colin learns how to walk, which I think is like so beautiful. It's like such a lovely little gorgeous metaphor. And of course, like the last piece in the puzzle is Colin's dad, Mr. Lord Craven. And in this sort of a little like I would say magical thinking moment, like the whole the whole book is very magical thinking. One is like explicitly like a little witch, spooky witchcrafty, which like is kids. something Francis had adopted. Yeah, she was very time. into um, what I would say like at the time was known as Christian science, but is sort of I would say more like homeopathic sort of like integrating the spiritual with the natural world. That was what she was really into at the time. The kids do this sort of magical spell, ritual, prayer chant, and it ends up um, infiltrating Lord Craven's mind. And 
he sees uh, his 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 dead wife tells him you have to go to the garden go to the garden and so he goes back home immediately and he sees his son walking and they embrace and it's beautiful and they live happily ever after and i'm sure mary and colin get married even though they're cousins but like it's whatever it's the early 1900s sometimes that stuff just happens it's just in the adaptation that's not a thing in the book oh also in the also in the adaptation dickon dies in the war yeah, no. And which one is that the 1980? That's the that's the made for TV. No, wait. I think it's the 1993. Yes. One of our one of my favorite uh lonely girl moments though with uh Colin is he learns to walk but it's not like, "Oh, I I'm going to believe in myself and I'm going to walk." It's like Ben comes in and he's like, "I've never wanted to look at you because I loved your mom so much." And it makes it bums me out and Colin's <laughs> Out of spite, he's like, I'm not a cripple, you old, ugly man. You're a groundskeeper and I'm rich. He stands up and walks for the first time because he's so pissed off. Like, Honestly, not- it hits so hard because I only learned how to parallel park out of spite in a, a very similar situation with my mother. And I think – so to tie that back into Secret Garden, I think there was a recent ad- – <laughs> There was a recent adaptation with Colin Firth, and I listened to a film review podcast obsessively, and they reviewed it, and they were like, nah, it's Secret Garden. And looking at, I just watched the trailer, but the Secret Garden in this very new version that no one heard about, it did not do well, is the Secret Garden is so CGI, and it's like magical. Like, it's like- It's It's like like Bridge to Terabithia. Yes. And so like, and everybody got pissed off about that because the garden- was overgrown and it had potential, but it wasn't this magical land that will heal you. You're actually putting yourself into the earth and you are working hard and you yeah. are growing something. You're, and your nails are getting uh, soil embedded so far it will never come out. So is that okay. Secret Garden? Did we? And that's the Secret Garden. So the, Real concise, uh, just like we do. And so... What we really wanted to nail down in our thesis episode and our sort of main um, is what a lonely girl truly is. And breaking it down between a character like Sarah Crew in A Little Princess, who you could easily look at and see, oh, wow, what a lonely girl put in very lonely circumstances. This is so sad. She must be a lonely girl. When the truth of the matter is, no, she's not. Mary is a true lonely girl. She's a lonely girl in the loneliest sense because at the end of the day, Sarah will grow up. She will be esteemed and beautiful and rich and lovely. And I think this sort of... um, melancholy time where she was stuck in an attic being a servant and being poor and a beggar that will be sort of a blip in her timeline it's like a cute story she'll tell she's like guys oh my gosh crazy did I ever tell you about when I was like trapped in an (laughs) attic and like a monkey came and brought me sandwiches (laughs) I just love that this podcast is founded on the fact (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're 
making fun of a 10-year-old who tragedy has hit and she, she handles it really well. She well, handles it so well, and that's why, and that's why she why we hate her. That's why we hate Sarah Crew. We don't hate Sarah Crew. She's just not a lonely girl. Mary that Lennox, is what we're here about. Mary Lennox will be lonely. She will. She will be forever trying to fight and evolve past this hardening of self. This this sort of. We call it brattiness, but really it is sort of a, a shield that she's put up between herself and the world in order to pr- protect herself from the abuse that she has sort of endured being neglected, really. Mm. And what is lonelier than neglect? I mean, that's kind of the best way to put it. But one of the reasons Secret Garden works so well is Lord Craven. He is such a lonely girl in that, like, we we could have, like, a prequel to this where it's, like, he's a boy who is a hunchback and he's very unhappy. And literally at, at the description of him, they were, like, he had a good face, but he was a hunchback. And weirdly, this girl met him and loved him a lot and they got married. And she was so beautiful. And then she it's- died. And so, like, him on his own, he's a great example of a lonely girl. I think, like, his coming-of-age story would be really interesting. I think Colin, Colin, I think, changes the most. He ends with being like, I want to be an athlete and a scholar. And he has all these ideas on mysticism and nature and earth. And Mary, I think, is – and I just love that I don't know as we keep going in stories, I really love that. And Ben, the gardener, he's a lonely girl. And except for Dickon, honestly, but doesn't every tribe of lonely girls need no, like you need, you one need a sort of like magic a, boy? Like yeah, no, you do need a magic. Leader. Yeah, you need you need sort of a magic guiding light in order to find the will to live or yeah. at least have an example of of a way of looking at the world differently. Yeah, and like a hopeful hope- way. It's hope. Yeah, he represents – it's beautiful that all four of these people, it ends in the garden with four very lonely people. And mm. it's actually – it's like – not like, oh, it's community that gets them through. No, I think they'll always be lonely people. But that is what is so beautiful about – they had to push through their discomfort. They had, had to, to push – work. They had to work, and that is why they had to dig the soil. They had to they had to fertilize. It's like such a metaphor for the human condition, and and like any sort of whether it's like tied in so directly to mental health, or it's just a like a metaphor for self actualization and like cultivating the mind. Like it is, it's work, and that's what helps you move past that loneliness into something where you can experience community. You can go to a stupid party and feel bleak and empty and not need to go chain smoke outside in order to like uh, find the will to live. Is that going to be our series finale one day is like (laughs) you can just stand there at a party. I went to a party and had a great time. I had a great time and I didn't want to immediately leave and or die. Um, uh, the the auteur is, is important and their personal journey is important to know. I don't think I would have had as much of a context for A Secret Garden if I hadn't gone in and like done my research about uh, Franny Bernie and really like seen what she went through and yeah. how her work evolved. It makes me a lot more – it makes me a lot less 
fearful about bad things being like the end of of my ability to function. Yeah, and I'll write a secret garden. She uses the death of her father is obviously there is not is there an alive dad in this whole thing? No, no, there's not a there's no not a dad in dad. sight. Not a no. dad in sight. That's gonna be like honestly, I feel like. For future lonely episodes, we do need to take into context how many dads are in sight because – So far, not, not a one. Madeline, thank you so much for um, – Rebecca, thank you. This has been a pleasure. Um, where can the people find you if they want to find you? Well, I haven't decided to switch my username or not on Instagram. So just sort of, I'm, just sort of, um, throw your dice on Instagram and see like if you can figure around. it out. No, um, I am at the search for pink on Instagram because I came up with that six years ago, and I might change it one day. And if not, I'm Rebecca Botter, B as in bear, O T T E R, and that I have a podcast called The Search for Pink Podcast. I interview people whenever I feel like it, honestly, mm, at this point. Word. If I if I want to become friends with them, like I wanted to become friends with Madeline. Guys, don't use it. It works. Yeah, I know. It's like this is my trick. But also, guys, sometimes it doesn't work and it's awkward. How can yeah. we find you, Madeline? I just I don't even think we can. Do you I don't think anyone can, I don't really have presence? I don't. I don't really have a presence online. There is this sort of weird little niche app called TikTok. That if you felt like typing in my first and last name, I might come up. Also, if you went on Instagram and then typed in my last name and then my first name, you could find me there. Yeah, I I hate social media so much. I hate it. That's I don't post on it because I really don't like it. I, I like just, I, just I don't kidding. know if I, I believe you or not. I, we love, love attention and we want yeah. you to like us. It would be it wouldn't it be great if we were both powerhouses? Oh, I would love like a mitochondria. Yeah. Okay, guys, we are literally paying for every second of this because we're recording it on a podcast platform. So we're so going to say gonna- Get the heck off. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, we look forward to being lonely with you next week rate review and subscribe and send it to the loneliest person you know all right (laughs) bye bye